Father, as we have um, read Your Word, Lord, we long that our relationship with You would not merely be one of knowledge, Lord, but that would, we would be able to read and understand the heart of the author of this book. That we would see uh, the deep well, the deep waters from which these words are written. The deep care and deep concern of, of you for your people. The deep concern that should be ours between one another. Father, we pray that not just individually, but as a church, through the reading of Your Word and through its application in our lives, that You would conform us into the image of Your Son. That You would make us a bright light into a dark world. Father, have Your way in us today as we open up Your Word. Please open up our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are coming to the close of what has been for me, and hopefully for you, a powerful letter to study. Uh, We've been looking at faith that is alive, right? That's been our summary statement. You could have other summary statements. You might call it genuine faith. Uh, You might call it uh, walking the walk, not just talking the talk. All of these could be encapsulating statements for this letter that James wrote to the church. Faith that is alive has been the way I've been summarizing it. And it's great that, to look at it that way because we've seen too many and we, we know too much about faith that is dead. Having a faith or proclaiming to have a faith that then has no impact in the way you live or the way you behave. That's dead faith. We talk about believing, but then there's no evidence of belief in our lives. So James, through 23 questions and a number of imperatives or commands, He's helping us to take our pulse, isn't he? To take the pulse of our faith. Chapter 1, we talked about trials. Chapter 4, we talked about humility. Chapter 3 was about the tongue. Chapter 2, about relationships between one another. All of those areas, we have to take our pulse and go, okay, is our faith alive? Last week, powerful stuff. About not judging one another. About counting on the future to do the things God wants us to do. And he said to us, to remind us, life is a vapor. Matter of fact, Aline and I were speaking before the service today, and she was reminding me that it was two years ago uh, that Dan Parks was here among us uh, for service and left and had an insurance call to go on and never came home. It was two years ago um, that that Darlene and, and their family realized that truly, Life is a vapor. And we put all our energy and all our time and all our, our efforts into just accumulating wealth. And, and James said, why? You're living in the last days, folks. What are you saving up for? What are you, what are you counting on? And do it now. Serve the Lord now. Get saved now. Live right now. Powerful stuff last week. And we continue in that same vein. Chapter 5 from 7 to 20 Over and over again, we see discussed patience. Faith that is alive is patient. Are you patient? How patient are you? Especially Christmas season. I mean, you know, we're going to have these mad rushes. How patient were you on Black Friday? Right? With the traffic and all that. I mean, to tell you, if, if our cars had lasers on them, I mean, there'd be a lot of fried people driving around. And we'd be fried ourselves, no doubt, because someone would have lasered us. Chapter 1, James said, let patience have its perfect work. Patience is part of maturity in the Christian life. One man said, patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. Isn't that true? Patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. And man, I go to the grocery store and I lose patience with people in the express lane that have 11 items. And I still haven't figured out if a six-pack of soda counts as one or six items. If I'm in a hurry, it counts as six, and you better find another line. And we, you know, if our internet isn't like coming up in a second, we're like, oh, we're ready to call the, the company and complain and get them out here to fix our service. Remember when dial-up was all we had? 
Oh, and now it's like dial-up. That's like torture, you know. Just kill me already, you know, if I'm waiting for the Internet to go. Do you realize how lucky we are to have Internet at all? I mean, just the, the amazing capacity of our computers. We've we got to wait more than 10 seconds, you know. We've got to have fast food, and we have microwave our food now. We can get it really fast, and we can instant message, right? We've got an instant message, you know. I can't wait to talk to you till we get home. I've got to instant message you now. So patience is an area, folks, that we struggle with. And what a great message for for the holiday season, for Christmas time. Look, because you're going to be shopping, and someone's going to cut you off, and someone's going to get in your way, and you're going to go, okay, James said i got to be patient. So faith that is alive is patience. It's patience, excuse me. He says, therefore, in verse 7. So whenever we see therefore, we have to figure out what it's there for. It refers back to the previous section, which was about what? The rich taking advantage of the poor, you know, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and the rich getting rich off of the labor of the poor and the rich getting richer by defrauding or finding reasons not to pay. That's how they get so rich sometimes because they cheat and they steal and they scam. And people like you and people like me, I thank God for the rich in the world because they hire us. I thank God for the, the generous rich. I thank God for the kind rich. I always thank God for the nasty rich, you know, the mean rich. But I've had the pleasure to work for some wealthy people, and and they've been very kind and very uh, good at taking care of of me and and paying their bills and those kind of things. But they hire us. They provide employment for those of us that are not rich. But the problem is, is oftentimes the rich are just heaping up more possessions and to do so, they cheat the poor. They cheat the worker. And it's in that context, this diversity, even within the church, even with this, this congregation. Some of you have worked for others in here. Oh, and I always tell, be careful. You know, be, that can be a dangerous situation. Why? Because of what James is saying. It can lead to discrepancies and misunderstandings and difficulties. But even within a congregation, there can be those that are, that, that are hiring others to do work for them, and that can lead to problems, and that's why James says to them, therefore, because of this, this economic discrepancy, because of these issues that arise around money and finances and the rich getting richer, he says, therefore, be patient. Therefore, be patient, brethren, because you're going to get cheated. We don't live in a perfect world. We don't live in fairytaleville, right? The reality is not everybody lives for Christ. And even those that do live for Christ don't do it perfectly. So in the world that we live in, there will be tribulation. And it's into that. You, that's not what they wanted to hear. I'm thinking that knowing me, that's not what the people James is writing to wanted to hear. They wanted to hear, all right, folks, get yourselves together. Rally together in a support group. Rally together in a union. And now fight. We're going to fight these rich. We're going to get what's ours. We're going to get what's coming to us. We're going to boycott. We're going to pick it. We're going to do it. It's not what he says, is it? He doesn't say retaliate. He says, brethren, be patient. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's how to be patient. That's why to be patient. Because the Lord's coming. He'll set it right. He'll make it work. The Lord, trust me, folks, if you've been cheated in this world, and you have, and you're a Christian, you're not going to get to heaven and go, well, this doesn't make it any better. Right? Oh, I'm still mad about what happened. Look, when the Lord comes, you know, the psalmist Asaph writes a psalm and he says, God, I don't understand. Why do the wicked prosper? It doesn't make sense to me. And he said, when I thought about these things, I almost stumbled. My foot almost stumbled thinking about, you know, how come somebody who's rich, he cheats people and he seems to prosper from it. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And he goes into the house of the Lord and then he realizes their end. That's the deal. He realizes their end. That that's all they're going to have. is whatever they can heap up for themselves here, whatever they can carry out with them, which is nothing, that's all they're going to have. And an eternity of darkness and misery and condemnation. I understand that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is, is the only perfect judge. And he will set it straight. So he says, be patient. Don't lose heart. Persevere patiently and bravely, enduring the misfortunes and the troubles. 
Be slow to anger and quick to listen. Listen. Don't retaliate, he says, until the coming. Well, I'm not sure we can do it. Well, then don't be a farmer. If, if James says if you don't have that kind of patience or you're not willing to have that kind of patience, you'll never make it as a farmer. Because look what he says. Look, look at the farmer. See how he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. He's got to wait through two rainy seasons before he ever begins to see just a little something coming up and then forget about fruit is way off in the distance. How many of you guys garden? Anybody? I mean, that takes patience, doesn't it? You don't plant a garden because you need a salad tomorrow, right? Gee, what are we having for dinner tomorrow? Uh, Let's have salad. Okay, I'll go plant the tomatoes. That's not the way it works. And James says the farmer is the example to us of anticipating and waiting. The, the farmer works now, he suffers now, he sweats now, he toils now, and he tills now because he knows that in the end, it'll be fruitful. Not now. We're not going to be on the cover of Fluvanna Review, right? As Because we're Christians. We're not going to be getting glory now. We suffer now, we work now, we labor now, we love now, even though we're not loved. We minister now, even though the world is opposed to us. We love those that don't love us. We give to those to whom we don't expect to receive something back. We plant, we serve. Because we're like the farmer, we got to wait patiently, anticipate. He says, you also... Be patient. What are you going through right now? And you're getting frustrated. You're getting cheated. You're, something's going wrong at work or at school. And, and you're getting uptight. Nancy, James would say to you, be patient. Just be patient. Who knows if the Lord not, will, might come back tonight, tomorrow. And the Lord will take Amen. Thank you, Terry. Terry woo! He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Meaning, it's imminent. The coming of the Lord has always been imminent from the time He ascended into heaven. We read about that in the book of Acts. The coming of the Lord, it will come very quickly when He comes. It's always been imminent ever since that time. It could happen any minute, any day. So He says, fix your heart. Because you don't want to get your, let your heart stray away just before He comes back. So that's something you can do. You do that. He says, you fix your heart on the Lord this Christmas season. Not on your stuff. Fix your heart on the Lord. Establish it there. Plant it there. Put it in concrete. Right? Pour the concrete around your heart in Christ. And no matter what happens, you say, whatever, I don't care what happens in life, to me, or in the world, I am fixed on the Lord. I'm not movable. I'm steadfast. Can you say that? Or can you kind of take him or leave him? He says, establish your hearts. Fix it there. Be patient. Do not grumble, verse 9, against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. So we've been talking about sins of the mouth. Now he says, stop grumbling or groaning, literally to hold a grudge. Stop grudging against one another. It's not an outward complaint like a a judgmental complaint might be where you're talking behind somebody's back. This is something you keep on the inside. Nobody, Maybe nobody knows about it. It's a grudge. It's due to some circumstance that's been frustrating. It's the same word that's used in Romans 8 to talk about us groaning and waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Because we sometimes we get so frustrated with our own sinfulness, don't we? We just can't believe we did it again. You know, I'm not going to do that, and I didn't want to do that, but I find myself doing the things I don't want to do, and oh, wretched man that I am. And we get upset, we groan. And that's the kind of groaning that James is talking about, that something unfair is happening, and that's what the situation was for them. They're, they're, they got hardships that are going on. They're going through, they're, they're being mistreated, not valued. And he says, stop grudging. Stop groaning. Folks, even in a family, even in the church, grudges, holding grudges against someone for years and years and years and years. Look, life is a vapor. You may, or that person may die, and you never get to fix the situation, never get to reconcile. 
Life is too short to hold grudges. Life is too, you continue to punish that person in your heart. That's why he says, you know, lest you be condemned, lest you be judged, because you're judging them in your heart. You're just not saying anything. You're holding them guilty. You've sentenced them to death in your heart. Let them go. Set them free. Forgive them. And in this fellowship, if you've had an out with somebody, and you're just you haven't said anything, but you're just avoiding them because in your heart you're still kind of eh, you know, you're still kind of about them, you know. Just James says it. Stop grumbling. Stop grudging against them. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I mean, he's he's like right on the other side of the door. If you go to the courtroom, it's like when the judge comes in, it's like all rise. And as soon as the ju- the judge is right there, he's about to come in. You don't want to see you you to be seen, you know. Spit wads at each other or something like that, right? You know, when the judge is at the door, you straighten up. So he says, hey, the judge is at the door. And then he says, my brethren. So in some ways, James is so firm. In other ways, he's so gentle. He says, my brethren, as if they are exasperated about even being able to do this, you know, not holding grudges against the people that have wronged them. He says, look, brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Look, if you want to speak for the Lord, you're, you're going to suffer. Not everybody. If you're going to live for the Lord, you're definitely going to suffer. You're going to get wronged. It happens all the time. We love people, and we put ourselves out there to help and to serve and to give, and sometimes people step on us. Well, now we understand Christ, a little bit better. He says, look at the prophets. I mean, Jeremiah, Daniel, Isaiah, sawn in two. They suffered. Their messages weren't well received. But they, they, they took it patiently. They endured. They kept on with Christ. or They kept on with God in their instance. So there are examples to us about... And that's not really what, what I'd want to see about being a person who speaks in the name of the Lord. I would want James to write, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of honor and glory. No, he doesn't say that. No such luck. He says suffering and patience. But look what he says next. Indeed, we, not God, I mean God does, but he says we count them blessed who endure. We don't buy books written by guys who gave up, or by women who turned away. We, we don't have them come and speak to us. We watch the story of the guy who endured in India to share the gospel. We watch the story of the person who, who continued despite hardship, and we go, wow, that's awesome. That inspires us, doesn't it? Don't we read those? And we get inspired by that. We count them blessed who endure and suffer. They're the ones we invite. Say, come and talk to us. Come and inspire us with your message of endurance. I need inspiration like that. That's why I love to read the stories of the guys that, you know, of Charles Wesley riding on horseback and preaching starting very early in the morning, all day long, with bronchitis, spitting up blood, riding on his horse with pneumonia from church to church as a circuit riding preacher. He endured. Didn't give up. Why, why is it got to be like this for me, God? You know, He took it patiently. Well, another example, he says, You who have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end, and circle that word, the end intended by the Lord. That's what James is trying to show us. It's not now, it's what's coming in the end. Like with the farmer and the fruit that comes when? In the end, at the harvest. It was like that for Job. I mean, Job, what a great story. From him we learn that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What a life this guy had. I mean, he's totally blessed. He's mega rich. He's got family. His kids are all provided for by him. And Satan comes to God and says, Hey, what about that guy Job? He only sticks around with you because you bless him. You take that hedge away from him of blessing And you watch, he'll curse you. And God says, all right, you're on. You're on. 
and and I mean, within a rapid succession, one day, this guy's life, his stock market bottoms out, his family is killed, everybody but the wife, who, that's another story, his wife is the one that said, why don't you just curse God and die, you know, love to have seen their relationship, uh, but she certainly was not helpful to him, but he loses everything. And he says, naked I came into the world, and naked I'm going out. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's endurance. And if he had not endured, would he have had the same end? If he gave up, you know, it's one thing to start well, folks. It's another thing to finish well, isn't it? And we're all out of the gate. Woo, we're running, we're running until we get tired at about mile three or or. 300 yards for me. But you're better runners than me. And then we want to quit. We want to give up. I'll just go watch TV or something. Job. The end of his life. I mean, he, 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 he tries to understand and figure out, God, why have you let this happen? Why, what's going on? It would have been better if I didn't even, if I was never born. That would have been better. And God says, who are you to tell me what's best? And he begins, God says to Job, I hope God never has to say this to me. God says to Job, now you listen while I, and you, you listen like a man. I'm going to question you. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm listening, you know. I'm going to question you. Job, how long you been around? How long have you lived? Were you there when I, what's the world hung on? What's the earth, what keeps the earth hanging in the midst of the universe? What keeps the universes hanging in the midst of the universe? Where does the water come from? Where did, where did light first come from? Were you there, Job? Did you see it? Can you tell me? And Job's going, oh, you know, I don't know. Do you, have you ever seen a deer give birth? Where does the hail come from? What about the dew? What about behemoth and leviathan? Can you go fishing for a dinosaur of a fish? Can you draw him out of the deep? I mean, let's talk about the animal. How does the hawk fly on the updrafts? Who designed his wing just that way? And Job says, all right, God, you asked me to answer you, and I'm going to answer you. I thought I knew you. I had heard about you, but I didn't know nothing about you. But now I know. See, Job learned a lot. And in the end, his latter days, the Bible says, were more blessed then, look, folks, your latter days are going to be more blessed than, your heavenly days are going to be more blessed than your earthly days. Just know that, right? Your heavenly days, God restored to Job and then more. And that's what God is going to do. Whatever you have to suffer, whatever you have to give up in this life, it won't be anything compared to what you're going to receive when you are face-to-face, face-to-face with the creator of the universe, the living, the loving God, who created you for a purpose to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when you're face to face with Him, you won't be able to talk and say, well, what about all that? You're just going to be worshiping Him. Because you will know that everything has been right. The Lord is very compassionate. But above all, verse 12 says, now, it's interesting to get to these, no grumbling, be patient. And He says, above all, I mean, more important than all those things, is what? Don't swear. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. He says don't swear. Sometimes when we're trying to emphasize a thought, emphasize um, a word or an idea or something we said, we swear. We used to do it all the time as kids. We do it as adults too. I swear to God, Oh, I swear to God, how many of you said, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. The rest of that says, wait a moment, I spoke a lie, I never really wanted to die. <clears throat> that's how the rest of that goes. Now, that's the issue. You see, they're taking oaths, they're saying, oh, I swear to God. Or, and, But what happens, see, in this culture, vows were a, a significant thing because they didn't have a lot of contracts and things like you'd write it out and sign it. So if you wanted to emphasize that your word was true, you would say, well, I swear. Now, the Jews did a lot of oath-taking. And they, 
they knew that the commandment said, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So if I swear to God, then that carries a lot of weight. Am I, am I still, is it the rapture? Are we still here? Is this, that's like heavenly music coming from somewhere. If I swear to God, you see, when we swear, that means that the thing I'm saying, that the, the person I'm swearing by is greater than me and will make sure that I do what I'm supposed to do or said I would do. And if I don't, then I will be punished. Right? God do so to me and more if I don't, whatever. That's how oftentimes in the Old Testament you'd see it. So, because the Jews knew they didn't want to take the Lord's name in vain, so they started swearing by heaven. Or swearing by earth, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, or I swear on my mother's grave, or whatever it is that we've done, we've sworn on these things in the past, because uh, we lie, and people lie. And that's why oaths are even necessary, because people lie. Say, you know, you've told me that before, no, 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 this time I swear. This time I swear I'm going to do it. No, no, really this time. Right? And that's how we do it. I get lied to so much as a pastor. Can I just tell you, I get lied to so much. I'll see you in food line or see someone that's been here and then I haven't seen him in like six months. No, no, I'm going to be in church this Sunday, pastor. I'm telling you, I'm going to be in church. I swear, I'll be in church this Sunday. Or I swear we'll do that. You know, I, you know we, we do a lot of benevolence in our church. And people will say anything to get what they want. They don't care about their integrity. They don't care about their name. They just want help. And so they'll swear to do anything or they'll tell any kind of lie just to get what they want and they never follow through with it anyway. And that's what the problem is, is that we, are, we shouldn't need to emphasize our words by saying, no, no, I swear. Or, or this time I mean it. Well, you, what was last time? Did you not mean it last time when you told me you were going to do that thing? I imagine these people might be mouthing off to each other about the, the wickedness and the evil that they've endured. I swear to God I'm going to get even. I swear. And they're not there. So we're real tough when we're just with our friends. I swear I'm going to get them. Well, you don't really mean that. He says, look, I tell the person in food line, don't tell me you're going to be at church. Just come. It would be better for you not to tell me anything and to just surprise me and show up. And that's what James said. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. I want to talk to all the Sunday school teachers and all the moms and dads for a second. The Bible says don't provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. You know one thing that discourages kids that we do is we lie to them. We tell them we're going to do something. We're going to take you here. We're going to do that. And then we don't do it. Parents, be really, really careful with this one. Let your yes be yes. Who can dwell in my holy hill, my holy habitation? God would say, Psalm 15, the one who makes a vow and keeps it to his own hurt. You may have said you were going to do something, and it may become inconvenient for you to do it, but your integrity and your name, and, the, and because your name is tied up with Christ, the name of Christ rests on you being a man or a woman of your word. Who, who your kids know Christ as. Is he faithful or is he not faithful? They're going to see that through you. If mom and dad never tell, or, or always, you know, they promise this and it never happens, then they're going to wonder, can I trust you about this? Can I trust what you say about that? Sunday school teachers, we do it to the kids it, here in this church. I've heard it a few times. Oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to do that, so we're going to play this game. And then, oh, well, I talk too long, we're out of time. And the kids see that over and over and over again, and they get discouraged. So to us, James would have us know, look, Here's the deal. It doesn't matter what kind of oath you take. The, the issue is your heart. The issue is, you can swear in a court of law, I do by solemnly swear, to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me God. And then you can lie. You can stand before a pastor at a marriage, at a wedding, and say, as God is my witness, and then not keep it, not keep that vow. Sickness and health, rich or poor, better or worse. So really the issue is yes and no in the heart. That you, if, if it's in your heart to have integrity, to do what's right, to say what you mean and mean what you say, then it doesn't matter if you swear. Who cares? You're going to do it or you're going to not do it based on what you've said. So that's really important. 
Uh, Lest we fall into, by the way, it says hypocrisy. Interesting. The word there literally in the King James Version uh, is hypocrisy. That's the issue. If if we're not people of our word, we become hypocrites. Now, verse 13, he's going to wrap up some issues here. Again, speaking of patience, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone not suffering? Maybe that would be a better question. If anyone is among, among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone, uh, is anyone cheerful, let him sing psalms. We always have on any given day, uh, being a pastor can be an emotional roller coaster. Being in the church can be an emotional roller coaster because uh, in one morning, we're getting a call that someone's just had a baby. You know, oh, praise the Lord, or something great has happened. Someone, oh, God's answered this prayer. And, and, and later that afternoon, uh, someone dies. Or, or someone finds out they've got a, a diagnosis. And so in one day, in the one congregation, we have those in here that are, today, you're, you're, just, you're just joyful. You know, things are going well, and you got a raise, a Christmas bonus, and man, you're pumped. And so you're merry, and you're just singing away to the Lord. But then others here... You've had losses around Christmas time, or you've had losses that you remember around Christmas time. And you're going through a hardship. And so at any one time, the people, James says, that are having a hardship, man, pray. That's our recourse. When we feel we have no power as someone who's poor or someone with no means, we have no recourse. Yes, you do. You have prayer. Prayer is not a last resort, it's an only resort. If anyone, is there anyone suffering here today? If there anyone is going through a hardship, has endured evil, then the Bible says you pray. And you keep on praying is literally the Greek. You, keep, you pray and you keep praying and you keep praying and you keep praying until you die or Jesus comes back. That's when you can stop praying. When you're face to face with Christ, you won't need to pray anymore. All your prayers will have been answered. Keep on praying. You feel like giving up. You feel like holding a grudge. Pray. It takes the focus off of you and puts it on the Lord. And keep on singing. If you're merry, the Bible says, then keep on singing. Man, sometimes in the midst of your suffering, you recognize the greatness, the faithfulness of God, and just despite the fact that you're suffering, despite the fact you're going through hardships, man, you just want to come and sing to the Lord. We need to be a singing congregation. God's people are a singing people. God puts, when you get saved, God puts a melody in your heart. And you can't hold that back. So you just sing and you praise Him. And we should. We should be, we can be, we must be a church that when we are merry, we sing. We praise the Lord. We sing psalms to the Lord. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This is uh, what I would call a challenging passage for a number of reasons. Um, A controversial passage. Uh, The poor in their day had little resources for health care, for medical needs. Uh, You think about the woman or the widow who had the issue of blood, how the Bible says she had been to the doctors over and over for 12 years, and what happened to her? She got worse, and she spent all her money on doctors, and she just got worse. And at what point, then you don't have recourse. They didn't have free health care for the poor and, you know, those kind of things. So it's into that culture that James is saying this, that when there may be no hope in the world for you, nobody's bending over backwards to meet your needs health-wise, the church is there to prayer for prayer, and care for you. Prayer and care. So it doesn't, he says, look, if anyone is sick. Now one of the issues is, does the word, the word sick, the primary translation of this word is usually weak. When we read, the, the translators read this word in the Greek, and then they have a choice of how to translate it based on the context that it's in. Oftentimes, most of the time, the translators chose to, to translate this word as weak. But here the translators chose to translate it as sick. They're connected. You ever been sick? Maybe you're sick today. Don't breathe on me. 
And then when you're sick, you feel weak, right? So they're connected. No doubt they're connected. But oftentimes, it's the meaning is to be weak or powerless or feeble without strength. So he said, is anyone among you sick or powerless or feeble? Evidently, this person is pictured as a person that can't get up and get to church. Because he says, let him call for the elders. The responsibility is on the sick person, the weak person, the person that's been enduring hardships, maybe beaten by a cruel master and laid up because of it. He says, call for the elders, not the doctor, not the lawyer. Call for the elders. Deal with it within the church, not the faith healer. Deal with it within the fellowship. Call for the elders. You, it's not our job to know when you're sick. Sometimes you guys get sick and we never hear about it. Then you hold a grudge against us because we didn't come visit you. Did you call us? If you call us, guaranteed we will come. Guaranteed the elders of this church will come. If you call and say, I'm sick, I need prayer, we'll be there. I can't get out, I can't get up, I'm hurting. Your job to call. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So sort of the laying on of hands, the prayer for that person. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now that is also an interesting place where this gets a little bit um, tricky and maybe sometimes it's misunderstood. Oftentimes the ritual now is that when we pray for the sick, we have our little vial of anointing oil and we take and we rub a little cross right there. I don't know how that started. It didn't start in this passage. Because there are two words for anoint. One is the ritual ceremonial word, and it's where we get the word Christos, which is the word for Christ, the anointed one. The other word is a more common and mundane word, which is the word used here, and it literally means to rub with oil. To rub with oil. That's what it means. Not ceremonial. Probably has more to do with medicine. More to do with the way they would deal with someone who was sick in their day. You would put spices in the oils and you would rub those oils and spices onto a person's body. It was sort of medical treatment. So one man said, at the bottom, at, at bottom in James, we have God and medicine, God and the doctor, and that is precisely where we are today. The best physicians believe in God and want the help of prayer. So we have prayer and we have the application of, of touch, of of medicine to the, to the best they, they had the ability. And I think there's something significant there. So the elders come and they care, they pray for the person, but then just say, well, good luck, hope you get better. No, there's a care involved from the elders. Now I have a lot of questions about this passage too. You know, I, I've, what, what if they're contagious? You know, now don't call me. If you're contagious, wait till you're better. You know, just, you'll, I'll pray for you over the phone. We don't know if that's what's being talked about. You know, it's someone who is weak and feeble. Call the elders. Anointing with oil. Just the rubbing in of oil. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. It's so interesting. When we talk about anointing with oil, it's used ten times in eight verses in the Bible, the whole New Testament. Eight of those verses have to do with anointing with ointment, like Jesus' feet or your head when you fast. Just anoint yourself so nobody smells you when you're fasting and when you're not... Bathing, you know, look, look the part, look, look healthy and look vibrant. Don't look, don't walk around home oh, fasting, you know, so people feel sorry for you. There's only two mentions that of anointing with oil. One here in James, the second one is in Mark chapter six, and it's the only other one that talks of a physical healing. And the word used there of the healing is therapeuo or therapeutic. When the disciples went out and they anointed with oil, healing the sick, it was thera- they were therapeutic. It was therapeutic. And later in the passage, Jesus is spoken of healing or making whole, and that's the word to save, the same here as in James, the prayer of faith will save the sick, will make them whole, will restore their health. And the Lord will raise them up off the sickbed. I'm not going to sit here and, and... Proclaim to know exactly what's being said here. Exactly, you know, John MacArthur, wonderful Bible expositor I respect, thinks that in the context of everything that's going on, that it's speaking of people who are weary in their souls. And the Lord will raise them, raise them up. I don't necessarily agree with that. But 
certainly we, re- we wrestle with the fact that I've gone and I've an- anointed people and I've prayed over people and they've gotten worse. Right? I don't understand that. And, and there is a person, we went as elders, we went and prayed for someone who's connected to this congregation, someone who's in a wheelchair. And if ever there was a time in my life where I felt like, man, the Lord is really, I'm in my whole heart, with my whole heart, I had complete confidence in God that this guy was going to get up out of his wheelchair and be healed. He's still not healed. I don't understand. But I know this. I don't have to understand. I just have to obey. So I know this. When I'm sick, I'm calling for the elders to come and pray over me. When I'm weird, when I can't get out of bed, when I'm hurting, I, and I'll let the results be in the Lord's hands. Because I know that whatever I pray, when I pray according to His will, He answers me. And if He has committed sins, He will be forgiven. Sometimes there is a connection between sins and getting sick. Uh, sometimes we do things to ourselves that are stupid, and we suffer for it. But not always. Sometimes it's uh, life in this unredeemed body confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed Uh, confess your faults to one another that's the sure cure for pride sure cure for grudges instead of grudging about that person instead of judging that person hey listen really healthy thing to that person that you live with that person that you are connected to Confess your faults to one another. Hey, it was my fault. It was me. I did it. It was, you know what? It's an area that the Lord's been working on in my life. I know it needs fixing. Transparency. It's really a good thing, folks. It, this, confessing our faults to one another is a way to avoid hypocrisy in our church. If we are confessing our faults and continually confessing our, our faults, to, not to everybody. You know, I don't, don't come up to me and say, hey, by the way, this is what I did. Okay, thanks for letting me know that. Uh, no, confess it to the person who you wrong, to the person who you messed up against. Confess it to the, hey, I was wrong. Uh, you remember Fonzie? I was, it was, he couldn't say it. I was wrong, wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. Once you learn to say it, it's a beautiful thing. Confess it to who? Not the priest, to one another. Well, I'm not sure that our prayers can... I'm not sure... How do I know that our prayers are strong? How do, our know, how do we know that our prayers are powerful? You know, I feel like I'm, I'm just an average Christian. Well, he says, look at Elijah. Elijah... Well, actually, let me go back. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The, the, the powerful, the, the heartfelt prayer of a person who's in a right relationship with God produces something. There's something that's going to be produced from that prayer. You may not understand what it is. And so, well, here's the example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was human. He put on his toga or whatever he wore. He put on his sandals one foot at a time. You know, he was a guy just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So wait a second. You've got to go back in your study time to 1 Kings chapter 17, 18. Here's what you'll learn. Elijah is ministering in the time of King Ahab. And Ahab and his wife Jezebel, they had turned the hearts of the people to Baal, to the false gods, to idolatry. And so Elijah says, hey, here's what's going to happen. It's going to stop raining. And it didn't rain for three years. How could Elijah say that so confidently? Because he knew the word of God. That's how you can pray effectively. That's how you can pray fervently. When you know it's in the Word of God, you can pray it with absolute confidence. Elijah knew that in in the Old Testament, in the Torah, God had said, look, when my people turn away from me, I'm going to kind of put a plug on the rain. And the heavens are going to be like bronze, and the earth is going to be like iron. Nothing's going to grow. No rain's going to come. And then when they come back to me, it'll rain again. It was sort of God's way of speaking loudly to his people. So it had, they had turned away from God, and, and therefore it stopped. Elijah said, hey, it's going to stop raining. And he prays, Lord, okay, I know what you said. I know it's going to stop raining. So for three years, then in the midst of that three years, he has the whole Mount Carmel experience where he fights with the prophets of Baal, and they have the big the, the duel on Mount Carmel, and the sacrifices are there. And 
Elijah calls fire down from heaven and they burn up the sacrifice because he had said to the people, look, how long will you vacillate between two opinions? That's what the people were doing. They were, well, Baal is God. Well, God is God. Well, Baal is God. They were back and forth, back and forth. And Elijah says, stop it. How long are you going to go back and forth? Try to keep your eggs in both baskets. And when they saw the sacrifice, the fire come from heaven to burn up the, the soaking wet sacrifice, all the people said, God is God. God is God. We believe. And Elijah said, it's going to rain. I know it's going to rain. And so he went and he prayed. So he didn't just say, well, I know it's going to rain. God's going to answer. He went up on the mountaintop and he bowed before God with his head between his knees. And he prayed. Do you see anything yet? He says to his servant, nope, not yet. All right, pray again. Okay, praying. Lord, bring the rain. Bring the rain. Anything yet? Nope, nothing yet. Oh, Lord, bring the rain. Bring... Seven times. On the seventh time, he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. And he said, there it is. That's what I've been waiting for. I knew God would answer. I didn't know how long I would have to pray, but I knew he'd answer because I know his word and I know his faithfulness. Some of you need to be bowing before the Lord with your head between your knees, praying for God to bring the rain into your life. Over and over. Fervently powerfully, humbly, and then just wait for that cloud the size of a man's hand. We don't just wait and twiddle our thumbs for the Lord to come back. We pray. We pray. We pray. And, and finally, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Look, we got to care about each other. There's somebody that's missing that used to sit right next to you. And they're missing not because they moved away, but because they turned away. And if you can reach them, if you can talk to them, if you can touch their lives, to bring them back, it saves a soul from death. They were walking with the dead. Now, we don't just say, oh well, when someone turns away. Too bad for them. Glad I'm still walking strong. There ought to be this care for one another to turn others back when they've erred, when they've gone spiraling out and out. Now, I I know the hour is late and I just need five more minutes of your attention. I'm not going to vow that because I can't promise. But I'm guessing five more minutes. And I want to invite Philip up here because I really want to illustrate this verse. Come on up. I want to illustrate this verse as much as I want to preach on it. So Philip's just going to share um, a, a four and a half minute testimony because I made, well I didn't vow but I said it so my yes has to be yes. Um, some of you may have seen Philip around here. Can, is this microphone on over here? Can you go on over to that microphone Philip? Uh, I'll stand with you just a second. Now <clears throat> as Philip is just going to share briefly his testimony about this very verse about someone who had wandered from the truth and now has turned back, um, he is being baptized today because uh, he was anxious to be cleansed. Um, he knows of the cleansing blood of Christ, but is, is eager to uh, partake of the baptism. So, Philip, if you want to just share your, your four-minute story. I'm kind of scared, so um, I came here three weeks ago, and um, I was living in total sin. At one point, I I had I was I was done with life. I thought life was there. There wasn't there was there was no more, and I tried to take my life, and um, I came here and. I met Pastor Steve, and I told him, you know, look, where do I turn? Where do I go from here? I'm in a hole. I can't get out. And by the grace of God, three weeks passed, and he had turned my life from total sin to being being humble and living for the Lord. I cry to this day 
And I pray every day that not a moment will pass that the past is the past and if and the, and the, and there's a there's a future and a, and a and a better life that is far greater than any man can imagine. God is good. Amen. And uh, I I just I just thank God for what he has done. Um I've I've heard a lot of people I hurt my mother. I've hurt my father. Just from the mistakes that I made. Just. Just living in sin. And my mother's standing here today. And, uh. By the graces of God, she's here, and uh, I thank her for being here. But life has changed, and it has changed for the better. And if there's anybody out there that had a hard life, God is there. That's all I have to say. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brian. I must go on here. Hey, um, and I just to, you know, I thank God that He brings to this fellowship and that you bring to this fellowship uh, folks that are hurting, struggling. And I know, I'm just going to speak from my heart. I know sometimes. When we see someone with piercings or tattoos come into our midst, we can. There's something in us that sometimes goes, "Well, what are they doing here? You know, this is church. Don't they know they shouldn't have piercings?" Look, I thank God that this fellowship is filled with grace, because you never know what that person is coming in here for. And if you draw away from them, and, and rather than accepting and embracing them, if you judge them, that may be the last time they ever come to church. Because you will confirm for them what they thought all along, that church is just full of snobs and hypocrites. But because you and we just love the sinner, because we were loved when we were walking in our sin, God can do amazing things. God can do them. And Philip and I talked, and he said, you know, as he said, I'm done with life. I try to take his life. I said, look, before you try to take your life, why don't you give it to Jesus? Let him try. Amen? Amen. So, so here's what we're going to do. I don't know if there are any daring and brave souls, but Philip was eager to get baptized. So we figure they're baptizing in cold rivers in China. Um, we're going to baptize in a cold lake today at 1 o'clock at the main beach at Lake Monticello. So, you know, we're not, there's no party. There's no killing the fatted calf. Um, just hopefully a warm van and some tea. <laughs> But uh, so if any of you have time and you can come by and, and just it's going to be quick. So if you blink, you might miss it. <laughs> We're not going to hang around in the water for real long, just enough to demonstrate that the old life is past and the new life has come. If any man is in Christ, if Philip is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all old things have passed away. All things are made new. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Let's pray.